Well, the title of this morning's message is Hope for the Homesick. I don't know if you have ever been homesick. I suppose there are people who just can't relate. But um, I have been homesick a lot in my life. Uh, call me sentimental. I suppose I am at some level for sure. Uh, many of you know I, I'm a weeper, and, and that's okay. I've, I've, I've just embraced it. But uh, Christmas, as you know, tends to be a sentimental time of year, and you might say it's the most homesick time of year. People really struggle during this time of the year, and we don't want to deny that. Um, the struggle is real, and homesickness is, is uh, real suffering, and it's a, it's, a, it's a joyful suffering in some ways. You can hear it in the songs at Christmas, right? I'll be home for Christmas. There's no place like home. We just sang a couple of marvelous hymns talking about our desire to see the return of Christ. Christmas is a time that tends to be coupled for most of us with, with some sense of longing for home. I was super homesick when I went off to college. I remember it as my parents drove off. Um, some of my strongest memories of being homesick came from being dropped off at camp. I don't know about you, but I hated camp. Don't make your kids go to camp. No, just kidding. I, I remember distinctly, you know, huddled up in some teepee with eight other strange boys and, and in a sleeping bag, secretly longing for my bed and my mother and good food and all those kinds of things. I couldn't wait until I saw that VW bus pull up on Friday afternoon. It was the best day of my life. <clears throat> I remember being homesick just being at a friend's house overnight and wishing I were not. I was reading a travel blog post this week. It caught my attention as I was thinking about these things, and this young guy writes this, quote, nothing saps the joy from traveling quite like homesickness. Sometimes this insidious beast begins slowly lurking beneath the surface for a while before it finally rears its ugly head. On other occasion, it rushes forth from nowhere like a surprise slap in the face. Either way, one thing's for certain, he says, homesickness stinks. Missing home, listen to this, missing home badly takes a, the wind out from under your sails and traveling starts to feel trivial. It's incredible, really. You can be in paradise and feel nothing but longing for home. That got me thinking a bit about the Christian life the Christian is homesick in this world, increasingly so. As you get older, that homesickness only grows more and more acute. And it's not utterly debilitating most of the time. But there is this low-grade sort of perpetual sense of longing for home. And as time grinds on and we wait and we wait, it can tend to make this life begin to feel trivial. I think this malady is a malady that every believer 
really in the history of humanity experiences. We just, as I said, sang those hymns of Old Testament saints longing to see that initial coming of Christ. We know that the church even now is like a bride pining and longing for her husband. And every believer in the history of mankind has known in this broken, sin-stained, and sorrow-saturated world a longing for a place that we are not yet. The Apostle Paul knew this sort of thing, didn't he? He said to remain on. He was hard-pressed. He didn't know which to do. To remain on in this life certainly meant fruitful service for him, but he really wanted to depart and to be with Christ. He really wanted to go home. And I take from that that this homesickness that you and I experience in this life is a good thing. It's a healthy thing. It's a right thing. If it's missing, something's wrong. There are three comforting and stabilizing realities for the Christian in the text that we will see this morning. And they come to us not as a cure for the homesickness that we experience in our hearts, but ultimately as hope to strengthen us in the meantime. Let's read from Philippians as we come to the close of this profound chapter that we have been studying, chapter 3. Let's pick up in verse 20. For our citizenship, Paul writes, by the Spirit is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Lord, this is a wonderful chapter, and I have rejoiced to preach it. I've rejoiced to learn and to study and to grow, and I trust you have used it for the good of your people. And Lord, as we come to these final thoughts of this section, I pray that you would take these things and multiply them to our hearts, that we would grow in our gratitude for you, that, Lord, the longing of our heart might even be increased and that you might comfort your people, that you might comfort us despite our longings, Lord, that we would learn how to wait eagerly and yet patiently and that you would encourage us by the realities that are in this text. Use them, Lord, use this frail man to proclaim these unfailing things to your people and magnify yourself, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Turn back with me to the beginning of this chapter, and I want to just briefly, really skip across the top, just so we can be reminded again about all the things that we have been looking at, and then we will come to these final verses. You remember Paul begins in verse 1, by encouraging us to rejoice in Christ. That that is to be our perpetual posture in this life. 
to rejoice in him. And Paul says, it's no trouble for me to remind you of this again. This has been his call and will be again in in chapter 4, to rejoice in the Lord. And he says, there are some people out there who are a threat to your joy in Christ. He refers to them as the dogs, the evil workers, the false circumcision, these false teachers who were trying to enslave again the Philippian church back into the rites and rituals of of, of, of uh, rabbinic Judaism, ultimately. And Paul says, look, you, you can't get there through the route of legalism. You cannot attain to the righteousness that God requires by keeping the Mosaic law. He says, no, you must have a different righteousness. You must have a righteousness that comes through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. And Paul gives in verse 3 a depiction really of the Christian, and he says, we are the true circumcision because we worship in the Spirit of God. There's a spiritual dynamic to our lives. There is a spirit who moves and motivates us to worship and to serve the Lord. We glory in Christ Jesus alone, and we put no confidence in the flesh, no confidence in our ability to do anything to attain to the righteousness that God requires. And he goes through his spiritual autobiography saying, basically, look, if anybody could have gotten there in who he was by birth and what he accomplished in his life, it would have been me. I was born right, I behaved right, and all of these things, ultimately, he comes to in in verse 7, he says, all of these things that were gained to me, I consider them now all to be lost for the sake of Christ. In fact, all things are lost in comparison with the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He wants, in verse 9, to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of his own derived from the law, but that which comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul says, I want to be found in Christ, and beyond that, being justified by his grace through faith alone. I want to know Christ. I want to be conformed to his sufferings. I want to to know the power that raised him from the dead in my own life as I seek to be conformed to the image of Christ. I want to grow and be sanctified. I am running full speed ahead toward what I have ultimately been laid hold of by Christ for, and that is to be glorified and conformed to the image of Jesus And I'm seeking that with all of my heart. I'm pressing on to lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ. And he says, I'm not there yet, so I keep running. I keep pressing on toward what lies ahead. And then he turns to the Philippians and he encourages them to follow his example. And to walk according to the pattern in which he walked. And then he comes to this warning in verses 18 and 19 that we saw a week ago that there was a different, an opposite, an equal threat to the church, not just the legalism of the Judaizers, but there were a set of libertines, those who had taken this message of of grace and justification by faith and done evil things with it. They saw it as as a ticket to sin, as freedom to to live and party on in fleshly lusts, 
believing that somehow the grace of God would cover them. He writes in verse 18, for many walk, of whom I've often told you and now tell you, even weeping, they're enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their appetite, and they glory in the things that that ought to bring them shame. They set their minds, Paul says, on earthly things. We live among people like this. And you remember that these are people that Paul is warning them against who, who were making their rounds in the churches, who were given to serving their gut. And Paul says we are not given to serving our flesh. We are not those who live by sensuality. If it feels good, do it. That's not what the grace of God in a life produces. We're not those who boast in things that are shameful. And we're not those who set our minds on earth. We're living for another kingdom. We're living for a future that God has given us in Christ. And so it's on the heels of this warning about the bad character of these deceived deceivers that Paul gives us the first of these comforting realities for those who are homesick. Again, I remind you, if you're homesick for heaven, that's good. Paul would have us lodge these things in our hearts. Here's the first of these comforting realities. The world is not our home. The world is not our home. Paul writes in verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven. He begins with the word for, the same word he used back in verse 18. This is a very tightly connected, well-reasoned flow of thought. He's really looking back here to verse 17 where he said, follow the good and godly examples that you have in me and in the church. For, verse 18, there are a lot of people who are bad examples in the church whose God is their belly, who glory in their shame and set their minds on earthly things. He says, look, those people are not homesick whatsoever. The world is their oyster. This is the place they love. They are, they are, they, they've never felt so comfortable in their own skin. And they are among their things, the very things in which they delight. They hope that this life just goes on and on. And, and, and if they ever do figure out cryogenics or whatever, they're looking for a way of preserving this life because this life is the focal point. It's what they have under the microscope. They are living for what is here. They say that home is where the heart is. Their heart is rooted on this planet and in this evil world system. But that is not the way it is for the follower of Christ in this world. Paul says, for our citizenship is in heaven. For all of the temporal pleasures and the joys that you and I have known in this life, they are many, and God, who is the giver of all good things, has given them to be enjoyed with gratitude, that we might worship the giver, not the gift, but all of those good things that God has given to us. They do not satisfy. They are not ultimate things. They leave you still longing the next experience. We understand that soul satisfaction comes in Christ 
and Christ alone. We're not at home here, and we know it. And so Paul reminds us, look, brothers and sisters, the homesickness that you feel, that sort of out of place that you experience in this world, that that is exactly right because your citizenship is in heaven. Now, I want to point out three words in this clause. The first one is the word our. In, In the Greek, it comes at the front of the sentence, placing emphasis upon it. In other words, those people, their God is their belly. Those people, they are the ones who who, who glory in their shame. They are the ones who mind earthly things. Our lives, Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. The second word is is. This is not the typical being verb used in Scripture. It's a verb that means exists. In other words, we have a real and a present citizenship that exists even now in the kingdom of heaven. Our true homeland, if you will, is in heaven. And there is a sense, isn't there, in which we are there spiritually already. Ephesians 2.6 says, we who are in Christ have been raised up with him and are even seated with him there. You know that chain of salvation that begins with the foreknowledge of God and the predestinating grace of God and then that that call of God and then the justifying work of God through faith in Christ and the, the, the end of that chain, the completion of it is that we've already been what? Glorified. The Christian lives in two worlds. We've got a foot in this one and a foot by faith in the next. And there is in the believer this ache that ought to exist in our soul for our homeland. And Paul says, look, our homeland exists in heaven. In fact, and this is our third word, the word translated citizenship occurs only here in the New Testament, and it's most commonly used in Greek literature to refer to a commonwealth. And it's a term that the Philippians would have immediately understood because Philippi was a commonwealth of Rome. The Philippians Most of them were citizens of Rome, living far from home. They had been born there. Their families were there. They had friends there. Their roots were there. And they were living presently in a Roman outpost, if you will. They were not living in their homeland. You might think even our own national history, right? Think of those 13 colonies that existed in the early days of this nation's founding, technically those people who inhabited those colonies were at the outset, what? British citizens living in an outpost. Now, that illustration falls apart (laughs) because those British citizens living a long way across the Atlantic and under the governance of a 
foreign and taxation of a foreign government, if you will, uh, the protection of the British Navy, those uh, people living there did not at all want the British ruling over them. The Philippians, on the other hand, were proud of their Roman heritage and their homeland, and they were glad to be associated with Rome and under the care of, of Caesar and under the protection of the Roman military. They shared all the same things as those who lived in Rome. They shared the same emperor, the same rights, the same laws, the same language. But they were living abroad and they were not in their homeland. And you can immediately see why Paul utilizes this word. You can see the parallel. William Hendrickson helps us here. Let me read this to you. Quote, in a sense far more sublime and real, these Christians dwelling in Philippi must realize that their homeland or commonwealth has its fixed location in heaven. It was heaven that gave them birth, for they are born from above. Their names are inscribed on heaven's register. Their lives are being governed from heaven and in accordance with heaven's standards. Their rights are secured in heaven. Their interests are being promoted there. To heaven, their thoughts, their prayers ascend and their hopes aspire. Many of their friends and members of the fellowship are there even now, and they themselves, the citizens of the heavenly kingdom who are still on earth, will follow shortly, end quote. Do you feel that you're a long way from home? You should. And that's normal. And that's right. Because the Bible reminds us time and time again as it defines our very identity. It tells us, 1 Peter 2.11, that we are aliens and strangers. We're foreigners here. Hebrews 11.13, we are exiles on the earth who desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Jesus said of his followers, they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. And while trying to help his disciples understand why the road here is so rough and why they face so much opposition in this unfriendly world, Jesus explained to them, look, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Beloved, we were once worldlings. We were once comfortable here. We were once conformed to the world. But you and I who are in Christ have been radically changed. Look with me just over a page to the book of Colossians. And chapter 1. In verse 13, for he, God, rescued us from the domain of darkness. That idea of rescue is the idea of salvation. 
He saved us from the domain of darkness. That is the world in which we live. And he transferred us. Notice this. He didn't leave you homeless. He, he transferred you out of that kingdom, and he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. You see, the Bible is clear that God not only transferred us from one kingdom to another, but he also transforms us, doesn't he, into Christ's glorious likeness from one glory into the next. So you have been transferred and you have been transformed and you are a worldling no longer. Which is why I say there should be a growing sense in your life, particularly as the Lord is sanctifying you, that this world is less and less and less a place of intrigue, a place of desire, a place that we would call home. By the time your hair gets as gray as mine, or you have none at all, you, you should be longing still more and more. I do remember in my 20s wanting to be married, wanting to have a family, wanting to get a home. Man, it's a good thing that happened in my 20s because now the number of things I want have been profoundly reduced. And this by God's design. Your desires are purified and your longings are clarified and that focus becomes more and more singular throughout life I want Christ, and I want my heavenly kingdom. I want to go home. And that just bleeds through the text throughout this whole thing. We are so entirely different than we once were. We are from an entirely different realm than we once were. And the contrast could not be more stark. Their minds, Paul says, are fixed on earthly things, ours on the kingdom of heaven. Their God is their gut. Ours is the God of glory. Their realm is the things of this world and the lusts of the flesh. Ours are the enduring things and the eternal things, the things not seen. We believe it's very much better to depart and be with Christ. They believe it's very much better to prolong their life as long as they possibly can. They are eagerly seeking the next high. We instead are seeking as we wait for a Savior from heaven. No wonder we feel so out of place. No wonder you watch the news and you say this world makes no sense. What is fondly known as common sense, beloved, is not common. And whatever was common sense three decades ago, 50 years ago, was only the lingering and leftover vestiges of a more biblically knowledgeable and more thoroughly gospel and Christianized America. But if you haven't noticed the vestiges, the scent of anything that even remotely resembles biblical Christianity or a Judeo-Christian 
ethic at all is completely disappearing from our culture, yes? But don't get wrapped up in that. Don't get tied up in knots about that, trying to recover that. Oh, beloved, let it stir in you and bring to a a low simmer this passion that you have. Let it stimulate in you that sense that Lot had who who was provoked by the sensuality of Sodom and Gomorrah in which he lived. And it, it, he was righteous Lot. <laughs> we ought to be those who are righteous and righteously longing for the kingdom above. Heaven is our home. That is where our Father is. That is where our Savior is. That is where our spiritual siblings are, many of them. And again, the older you get, you see this is the benefit of age. The older you get, the more friends and family you have there. And that that causes your heart to go again heavenward. Heaven is where righteousness prevails and it's where truth reigns and it's where peace abounds. It's where everything that aligns with who we are in Christ exists. And so we are, we are travelers, beloved, in a country that is not our own. This place is full of strange thinking and foreign customs and filthy conditions and we rightfully, rightfully pine for home. C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity, quote, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And Paul says, yes, that's right. Your citizenship is in heaven. And hope begins with that Fundamental meditation. Are you focused on this reality? Well, I know this. Do you? And is your mind attuned to it? Kingdom of heaven is my home. This is not my home. As my beloved friend Charles said to me so many years ago at this point, and I rejoice in that, I will live again, he said, and I, it struck me. Yeah, yeah. You don't have to get it all now. This world is not our home. Well, there's another commonality among God's people in this world. Secondly, we are waiting eagerly. You think about any time that you've been homesick, I dare to say that you were waiting, <laughs> right? This is just comes, comes par for the course with homesickness. You were waiting for a trip to end. You were waiting for the weather to clear. You were waiting for your plane to take off. You were waiting as you were driving home eagerly for that last mile when, when that, that house of yours would come into view. This is 
Another mark of the heavenly homesick is that there is a righteous discontent with our current world even when things are at their best. There is this resonant longing in our hearts, not just for the place of heaven, but for the person of heaven who is the great affection of our hearts. Look at it in verse 20, the, the, second, part, uh, the second part of it. For our citizenship, he says, is in heaven, from which, that is from heaven, also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We can scarcely wait to see him. It is a longing for a place, to be sure, but what makes that place most appealing is the person who therein lives and rules and will reign forever and ever. We have this very earnest longing, this, this expectant yearning. We are up on our tiptoes in anticipation to see our Savior. This word wait is the kind of waiting, not sort of passively waiting, biding your time. This is the kind of waiting that gives full attention and focused expectancy. You've seen this sort of thing as, as masses of people might gather, a bunch of groupies might gather to get a glimpse of some powerful dignitary or some rock and roll star or some athlete. The picture here is that we're the groupies up on tiptoe, craning and stretching our necks to see the coming of Christ and to know our deliverance from the futility of this foreign world. Go back to Romans 8, which we had read earlier this morning. Verse 18, for I consider the sufferings of this present time. Do you see he's focused on the here and now? And he says, the things that I'm enduring here for the sake of Christ are not worthy even to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You get what he's saying. And, and friend, if I can just pull over here for a second, you'll never think this way until you have a heavenly mindset. You'll never think this way until by faith your heart aches for the kingdom of heaven. You'll look at your sufferings and you'll say, these are too much for me to bear. Life is a burden. I have no hope. I'm discouraged. I'm depressed. I'm downcast. No. The, the way we get through that is to get our heads up and to remember what's coming. And so Paul, in the midst of his sufferings, which were profound, says the reality of the present is these sufferings are just trifling. When you compare them, I'm not minimizing, and he's not either, the sufferings of this life. But when you compare them to what's coming, <laughs> they pale. And then he uses this phrase, eagerly awaiting, three times in this text. Look at it, verse 19. For the anxious longing of creation waits what? Eagerly. There's our word. 
it waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. There's this anticipation on the part of the creation that's under the curse to see the sons of God revealed, to see what amounts to that time when Christ will again return. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Note, in hope, hope of what? that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth, childbirth until now. This world is somewhat like being in labor, and you women will understand this far better than us men. But there is a sense in which there is pain. I watched one of our pregnant women not too many days ago as she was just shifting in her chair trying to find some position in which she could find some relief. There's the discomfort and the labor pains of all of that, but it's going to give way to the glory of a newborn. Verse 23, not only this, but we ourselves, it's not just the creation, we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves as believers groan within ourselves. You see, there's the homesickness. Waiting eagerly, there's that phrase again, for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body, for in hope we have been saved, but hope that, that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what one already sees? That's easy enough to understand, yeah. But if we hope for what we do not see, but with perseverance, what do we do? We wait eagerly for it. I'm just going to read to you the rest of these references. You can write them down, but it's in a number of places in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 1.7, we are awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 5.5, 5, for we through the Spirit by faith are waiting eagerly for the hope of righteousness. Hebrews 9.28, Christ will appear a second time for salvation to those who eagerly await him. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, the Thessalonians had turned from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait eagerly for his Son from heaven. Titus doesn't use the phrase, but he says in chapter 2 and verse 3 that we are, the, we are those who are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. You see, this is not some isolated doctrine. I'm not having to draw little, little, little straws here, hoping somehow to, to build some sort of straw man to say you ought to think about heaven more. Do you see that it is fundamentally characteristic of the Christian to be waiting with eagerness for what is yet to come? We are not seeking our lives here. We are not seeking our satisfaction here. We are not seeking politically to bring about some, some utopia, and, and the, the old way, the old America. That is not our pursuit, beloved. Our pursuit is the things above where Christ is seated, where we are with him, and where we will spend the whole of eternity. This is one of the defining marks of a believer. And so in that sense, we are just like that kid at camp who cannot wait for his parents to arrive and to pick him up. 
sitting on the curb and with our eyes just focused down the driveway, waiting for that, that car that is so familiar to us and those parents who, whom we love so much to show up and make everything okay again. That has got to be our singular fixation. We eagerly, Paul says, await a Savior from heaven. Now, who is that Savior? Well, he tells us it is the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord is his, his sovereign title. He is God. He is Yahweh in the flesh. He is the sovereign King of kings. He is the exalted ruler over everyone and everything. And his name, his name is Jesus. It means Jehovah saves he is the one who was given by God and sent so that he might set his people free and save them from their sins. And he is the Christ. That, is, that speaks to his mission. He is the anointed one. He is the divinely anointed prophet, priest, and king, the promised deliverer and the redeemer of God's people. This is the one whom our soul loves and longs for. He is our life, Paul says, and he is the great preoccupation of all of his children. And we are waiting for him. Come, thou long-expected Jesus. Come. You can have this world, but give me Jesus. That is the song of the believer. This world is not our home. We are eagerly waiting for a Savior to be revealed from heaven. And there is a third reality for our heavenly homesick hearts that ought to make us brim with hope. And we find in verse 21, and it is this, that we are not yet what we will become. We are not yet what we will be. Why do we groan with all of creation? Because we are not yet what we will be. Why are we eagerly waiting a Savior from heaven? Because we are not yet what we will be. Why are we craning and looking for Christ to descend with a shout? Because we are not yet what we will be. And beloved, I would say this again. It, it, it would be easy for someone to listen to this, I suppose, and say, well, that guy is sure not happy with who he is. I am so thankful and so filled with joy for God's goodness to me in Christ and the life that I have by the Spirit of God. Life is full of joys and full of good and pleasant things that God has given to me. Life is effervescent. But it is so because of my future hope. Fundamentally, the thought of death, judgment, and hell would put, cast a real shadow on any joy of this life, right? Oh no, I can fully enjoy the things that God has given me here because I don't seek them as ultimate things, but as temporal gifts of God to me, then I might rejoice in his goodness. But the ultimate things, the weightiest of things, he has settled, but they will be finally and fully realized sometime in the future. And you want to know why it is that we are waiting so eagerly. It's not because circumstances necessarily are so terrible here, but it's because something beyond amazing is going to happen to you if you are in Christ. He tells us in verse 21, 
We are waiting for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, what is it that Christ will do? He will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Beloved, this is the fulfillment of our faith, and that is the redemption of our bodies. This, this is where the homesickness will fade forever. You will never be troubled by it again. In fact, you will never feel as at home as that first breath of heaven. You will say, this rarefied air is what I was intended to breathe by the grace of God. What is it this long-awaited Savior will do? Well, it tells us that he will begin with the body of our humble state or maybe the body of our humiliation. He's not saying, some of you may have the old Revised Standard or King James, I think, which says our vile body. He's not looking at the body and calling the body wicked. Sin indwells this body, and this body can become a vehicle for the outworking of sin. But the body is honored in Scripture. It's a gift of God, and it is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But it is a body that is under the curse of sin. It is a body, you know this, is prone to weakness and sickness and decay and death. And if you're not there yet and you say, what? Well, okay, you're under 10 and you haven't gotten it yet. But again, the value of getting older, right? This body is vulnerable. It is frail. Paul calls it the body of our humble state. The Lord is going to begin with this body. And he is going to transform it into conformity, the text says, with the body of his glory. And I don't really love the way Nasby put that. The Holman Christian Standard Bible got it better. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body. That's really the point. We are going to have a glorious body. What's that like? I don't know, but it's going to be glorious. Glorious. You've seen things undoubtedly in this world that are glorious. Beyond description. And you don't even know what to do with it. You realize that if, if, if you weren't there to see it, I, I can't articulate it to you. I can't help you see the sunset I saw or experience the, the, the cloud formation, the sun coming out. I can't tell you about the birth of my child. Uh, there were things that were glories in this world that, that no one can convey. And, and Paul here, you remember, he got an all-expense-paid trip to heaven, didn't he? He didn't know whether in the body or, or, or by way of a vision, but he was taken to the third heaven. Right? First heaven is right here, and then you got outer space. That's second heaven. Third heaven is the heaven of heavens. Paul gets to go there. Paul saw some incredible stuff, and he says, you know what? I'd like to tell you, but I'd have to kill you. I can't. God told me I cannot. It is not permissible for me to speak these things to you. And there had to be a sense in Paul. No wonder he wanted to be with Christ. He knew it was very much better. He'd had insight into it that you and I do not. And he cannot articulate this any more than to simply say, look, Christ has this glorious body, and believe it or not, that thing 
that expresses itself in a bad back and creaky ankles when you get out of bed in the morning. It's going to be glorious. We do know this, there'll be no suffering, no sickness, no death. We can imagine that we will have a unique capacity to be undistracted in worship, undiminished in strength. We'll never grow weary in service to anyone, let alone our king. We will be undisturbed by any sort of frailty whatsoever, and we will be able to abound and flourish. It will be a body that is perfectly fitted to a perfect life in a perfect place before our perfect king. And I think that's probably the best way to to deal with this is simply to say this, it will be glorious. That really is the dominant feature whenever the scriptures speak about what this day is going to be like and what our conformity to Christ will be like, the word glory is used. It will be more glorious and greater than you can even think or imagine. Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will be revealed with him in glory. We just read it in in Romans 8 and verse 18 that the sufferings of this present life are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. 2 Corinthians 4, 17, you know the verse, for this Momentary light affliction is producing for us what? An eternal weight of glory. You see, there's Paul again putting that thing on the scale and just going, if you understand the weight of the glory that is to come, these things are just so much lighter. Turn with me over to 1 Corinthians and look at Look at chapter 15. Let's just spend a minute here. We have a couple extra minutes. First Corinthians 15. And we'll pick up on verse 35. Paul is dealing with the issue of the resurrection. And some in the church of Corinth were teaching and believing that there was no resurrection from the dead. So we pick up mid-argument here, and Paul says, but someone will say, how are the dead raised, and by what kind of body do they come? You fool, Paul says. Those are strong words. That, he, he, he says, think with me here. Let me, let me give you an illustration. He says, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. He's talking, he's giving agricultural illustrations. He says, you, you plant a seed, it, it, it doesn't grow unless you put it in the ground and it gets buried ultimately. He says in verse 37, that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. You understand what he's saying? You take a seed, you've got to stick it in the ground, but it's just a bare seed. It's not very attractive. There's not much to it. It's a relatively simple looking thing. It's tiny. It doesn't shine. 
But what happens to that seed? What happens to that seed that you put in the ground? Well, if it's an apple seed and it's watered, it begins to drive down some roots and it sprouts a stem. And before you know it, that stem pokes its head through the earth. You're all gardeners. You know how that, well, most of you are gardeners. You know how this works. And in time, the full fruition of that seed which was planted in the ground gives rise to this magnificent tree that looks nothing like the original seed. And what? It, it spreads out its branches and it grows its leaves and it, it, it begins to produce fruit. And you say, my goodness, look what became of that rather humble beginning. That's what Paul's talking about here. So verse 38, Paul says, God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. Now, he'll go on to further explain that all flesh is not the same flesh, and one can't be compared with another. Each has its own glory. Skip down to verse 40. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. Now he looks from the ground and looks up to the sky, and he says, think about the heavens. The glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There's one glory of the sun, and there's another glory of the moon. What is the moon? It's a rock that reflects the glory of the sun. It's far less glorious than the sun is, though it has a glory of its own. And he says the glory of the earthly is another. Star differs from star in glory. And Paul brings it home and he says, so is the resurrection of the dead. It's sown a perishable body, but it's raised an imperishable body. It's sown in dishonor, but it's raised in what? Glory. It's sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, but it's raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there also is a spiritual body. And so he will go on to talk about how this perishable must put on the imperishable because perishable cannot receive the kingdom of heaven. And you can hear the scoffer, can't you? Just as they scoffed in Paul's day, so they do today. And perhaps some even here scoff. You mean to tell me that this body, which is to be buried in the earth and to decompose and to be eaten by worms, that this body that will go from dust to dust, that God is going to take this body and bring this body up out of the grave or take this body up in the rapture and that this body is going to, to as, as Daniel put it in Daniel 12, 3, this body will shine brightly like the expanse of heaven, like the stars forever and ever. Think of it. Think of it. How is that even possible? Paul says it's simple. If you're a man or woman of faith, Verse 21, he'll do this by the exertion of the power that he, Christ, has even to subject 
all things to himself. How is that going to happen? It will be by the outworking of Christ's might. Divine, sovereign, eternal omnipotence. There is nothing that Christ cannot do. Beloved, strengthen your faith on this. Draw near to this. This thing is going to be done by the measure of the working of his power, not your power. To subject everything to himself. Paul says, this is, your body is not that big of a deal. He's going to subject and he, he will subject the whole of the universe to himself in every atom. Everything obeys him. And so Jesus not only has power to create and power to sustain, but he has power to create anew. And you see, the problem for most of us is that our God is too small and our faith way too frail. Colossians 1.16 says, By him all things were created, everything both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. If Jesus for two seconds lost concentration and let go of this world... This whole thing, this whole universe would spin completely and utterly out of control. But the only way you're going to know that is by receiving the testimony of Scripture. I can't prove it to you. Einstein couldn't prove it to you. But this is why I say this is not difficult for a person of faith, and yet yet people will challenge it. You've thought it yourself. What about those who died at sea? I mean, what happens What happens to them? They sank to the bottom and some weird one-eyed something or others feeding on them. You know, or or you you think about those martyrs who, who died in fire. They were burned. They went up in smoke. What about them? What about the people who who were at Nagasaki or Hiroshima who underwent the dropping of an atomic bomb? They were instantaneously obliterated. What about them? What about them? Jesus knows where every piece is. And he alone can put Humpty together again by the power that mightily works within him. You see, beloved, (laughs) do you know who you're dealing with? Who knits you together in your mother's womb? Oh, no, no, I watched a National Geographic. I know how that happens. Mom and pop come together, and then their 23 chromosomes become 46, and that, that, that divides once, and then we end up eventually with this blastula of, of multiple cells, and then they begin to special, you know nothing. You might track the way that God has been doing that very thing in the womb of a woman, but understand this, beloved, that 
that there is no scientist who can even tell you what life is, let alone give it to anybody. You know, the Bible teaches very clearly, Jesus said it in his own words, that life inherently belongs to him, and he gives it to whom he pleases. Don't let the guys in the white lab coats confuse you. They're wrong. And it is this Christ who gave you life, and it is this Christ who breathed the breath of life into your very being. You did not breathe because the doctor spanked your tush. You breathed because God gave you breath. And you live today because God sustains your life. Christ gives you every heartbeat and every breath. It's breathtaking, isn't it? It's overwhelming to think about. But that's because you're just a peon little human with a little scrawny brain and very little power. Sorry. He is Christ, and he has all of it under control. He is the one who controls everything in the universe. It is that sovereign Lord who will bring it to pass. And we may be left with all kinds of questions. Undoubtedly, we will be about the particulars. But three things I know. He is able to do it. He is willing to do it. And he has promised he will do it. And that is enough for me. That should be enough for you. And we live by faith. We live by the things that are unseen. And these things in this text have been revealed to you even this morning that you might hope in Christ, long for Christ, love Christ, wait on Christ, and keep seeking the things above where Christ is. You read these things and you just can't come to anything else but, but, but understanding that all, all the irrelevance of the hullabaloo of life on this planet. All the politics, all the boasting of the world powers, all the threatening circumstances, all the material stuff that captivates our hearts. Beloved, it's fool's gold. And it would do you well at this point of maturity in your life to look back at the toy you wanted when you were four and you realize how goofy it was to have so much vested in a G.I. Joe, right? Jane. I was coming to Barbie or somebody. All that stuff that stirs our hearts to so much anxiety, it will pass in an instant. And beloved, we are living, we should be living, for something that utterly transcends this world. Because this world cannot give us what would care and minister to our hearts. This world cannot take away these things that have been given to us because we have an inheritance that is ours, that is in heaven as well. And in the moment that we see him, this body of humiliation will be transformed 
in a moment, in a, in a twinkling of an eye, into the likeness of his glorious body, and everything about this world will simply pass away. Be about your father's business. Live light. Seek to teach others about the things that are eternal. See that some would come with you, that your life might be, might be profitable to somebody else, that they too might be weaned off of this world which is perishing. Heaven is where we are headed. And you can take it from a guy whose speedometer seems to be her odometer begins racking up miles faster than I want them to. Yeah, there's a speedometer to it too, but I'll leave that alone. Listen, we, we, we are headed there very soon. Young people, hear me. I heard people say this kind of thing when I was young, and I thought, that guy's grumpy and crazy. Listen, you will be my age real fast. It will happen to you. I said, no way. I said, no way. That will not happen to me. Sure enough, it happened to me. And it will happen to you. I want to give you three questions out of this text very quickly that are useful for self-evaluation. And they're simply these. They come right out of the text. I would ask you this this morning. Are you homesick for heaven? Or are you at home on earth? Second question, are you captivated by the Lord Jesus Christ? Are your eyes lifted eagerly awaiting his return? Or is your head down on earth simply grazing for yet another mouthful of earthly satisfaction? And thirdly, are you longing to put off this body of humiliation and be transformed into the likeness of Christ? Does that stir something in you? Or are you seeking only to indulge this body? Is God your God, still your gut? And it's the next pleasure in this life. It's the next trip to there and the next automobile or the next meal or the next gathering with certain people or the next or the next or the next or the next. It's insatiable, I tell you. You'll never arrive. It's a cul-de-sac. It's a dead-end street. The only way to satisfaction is the Lord Jesus Christ. An unbeliever this morning, I would implore you yet again, come to Christ. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul, Jesus says? This life at best is going to be 100 years. Maybe you're like the old lady I heard of the other day, 116, fine, 120 years. Compare that to the whole of eternity, either in the kingdom of heaven or in hell under the judgment of God. It'll help you understand how foolish it is to live and try to suck life out of this world when you're going to spend the vast majority of it in the next. The God who made you gave his son for your sins. 
and he will forgive your sins and call you into fellowship with him and grant you an eternal dwelling in heaven as his son if you will come in repentance and faith. I urge you, come to Christ. He will not turn away any who come in repentance and faith. And brother and sister in Christ, I would encourage you, let these verses lift your head in hope. It is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of heaven, says Jesus. But the sorrows and sufferings of this life, as many as they are, and they are real, don't compare. And your heart rightfully longs for your heavenly home. And I would tell you what Jesus said, look, don't be troubled. Take courage. Why? Because I've overcome the world. And he has promised us, hasn't he, that where he is, he is coming to receive us even to himself Brothers and sisters, he has not left us in the meantime to sit, sucking our thumb and crying, waiting for his return. No, he has given us great encouragement. Draw your encouragement from the church. The church is a taste of home. Your brothers and sisters in Christ are a taste of home. I don't know if you caught it going through our text. He says our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly wait for a savior. The body of our humble state will be conformed to the body of his glory. You see, you are not alone in this battle against self and sin and the world and the devil. God has given you the church and given you the church for your encouragement. Draw near to the church. We are an outpost of heaven even here this morning which is why we don't forsake gathering together, but we encourage one another and all the more as we see the day drawing near. We need the encouragement of one another. Secondly, dwell on the promise of his coming. Christ is coming to take us home. He is a finisher. He will do it. And thirdly, remember the power of his might. He's able, he's willing, and he's committed himself to it. The one who created you cares for you. The one who chose you from the beginning will deliver you in the end. The one who saved you from sin will also save you from death. And the one who rose from the grave and ascended to heavenly glory will, by the demonstration of his own sovereign power, raise you in the end and transform you into the glory of his likeness. For I am convinced of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Let's stand and close in song today in the worship of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us 
from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Preach it. That is a great truth. May God bless you and may you go your way in joy today.